What is behind our fascination with hidden rooms, forgotten passageways, and abandoned tunnels? I'm your host, Leah. And I'm Phil. And while Steve is on vacation, I'm filling in for him. I'm Sam, and today we'll be jumping down the rabbit hole of secret spaces. If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural, free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. Okay, so I am welcoming Sam. Sam is my son. He is filling in today with for Steve, so say hi. Hello. Welcome to the party, Sam. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> and uh, and Steve is on vacation, That I, and I am so incredibly jealous. He and Sir Kraken. Yes. He took Sir Kraken with him, and he's sending back pictures of Sir Kraken in Iceland. Norway, uh, uh, Sweden. Sweden, Stockholm, Norway. you name it. He's All been everywhere. Them. He's having yeah, a Yeah, I think today he sent us uh, pictures of... Sir Kraken with clogs. Clogs, yeah. With <laughs> clogs awesome. and Yeah. So, yeah, he's he's out roaming. That little octopus is more well-traveled than I am. Than most of us. Well, yeah, <laughs> right. true. Of course, there's some of us that still think Texas is the only country in the world. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we really do have a fascination with secret spaces, don't we? I remember playing the board game Clue, which depicts a large mansion, and, uh, and in each corner room, there's a secret passage to another corner yep. room. And I always love that. It brings to mind a bookshelf that swings open when you pull it out with the right, just the right book, revealing a dusty passageway or a set of stairs full of cobwebs. And and this is where, you know, that Steve would introduce the Batman TV oh, series. always. And he, say, he you remember the head that. you could just put back or the piano that you could tickle and it would open the That's door. That's right. Always with the Batman <laughs> references. Um of course, and of course, you know, in these secret passageways, never a light switch. No. But always a convenient candelabra. Or, or the pull string light bulb. Well, I don't even think I've ever that's seen that. That's a newer that. thing now. That's, that's a newer thing. It's a pull string. Uh, did you know that the designers behind the game Clue based the graphics on an actual mansion? Okay. Uh, I get, so according <laughs> oh. to a 2021 article for DiceBreaker.com by Matt Jarvis... Tudor Close, located in Roddingdean, that's a name, that's quite a name, Roddingdean, UK, near Brighton, includes an actual secret passageway from its kitchen to its bar. Of course. You know, it's easy access from the kitchen to the bar because you don't want to walk the regular Well, hallways. you know, you don't, and you don't want to have to see the servants. Exactly. I think that's a servant's yeah, right. passageway. Well, I'd like to mention some literature and movies that portray secret places in order to illustrate how these lend to our morbid curiosity for all things secret. House of Leaves, a book that Mom oh, and I yeah. have yeah, both not finished, but really enjoyed the pieces of which that we've read, uh, where a homeowner finds that the house that he has just bought doesn't really add up. His The outside of the house is longer than the inside of the house. It doesn't really make sense. It's taking measurements and... Uh, you know, spoilers, his house ends up being this labyrinth that just goes on and on and on with doorways that lead to nowhere. But it doesn't nowhere. make any sense. And the book, though, itself is a labyrinth with footnotes right. and all of That's the reason I couldn't and get it's through not, it because I couldn't read all of that. Yeah, and it's not printed typically either. It's not, you know, it's not, you know, top of the page to the bottom of the page. Some pages have one word on them and you just jump, you know, jump around. Uh, right. So, I mean, it's really, uh, you know... Uh, 
It's a difficult it's an book adventure. to get. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a difficult does it have to get a, there. Does it have like you know a key or maybe like cliff notes? <laughs> That's what I'm ho- like. It is such a cool book. I mean, yeah. it's really you, highly rated, and it's such a cool concept. I just can't get through. You it almost need a whole Reddit forum to get through <laughs> right, it. Right, the, the ADD and people is not allowing this to happen. Right. Well, I'm also, lost. All right, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> also, there's you know Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, where Alice takes a literal trip into an unknown and a mysterious world. And of course, Harry Potter's Chamber of Secrets, and and countless other movies that use this trope of a secret passage. Yeah, and these constant themes in literature and entertainment give credence to our fascination with these secret places. And we've actually touched on a lot of these secret places before in previous episodes. Most recently in our Pirates episode, we talked about a desk with a secret space in it. Uh, And they found a a treasure map in there. And in our So Monumental episode from last year, we talked about many American monuments that have secret spaces in them, like the Washington Monument, the cave-like basement beneath the Lincoln Memorial, the unfinished Hall of Records behind Lincoln's head in Mount Rushmore. Um, and I think even like in the Eiffel Tower over in Paris, they have that secret apartment that was built in. For founding fathers too, right? I I, I forget who stayed in it, but. Uh, well, Eiffel. Eiffel created right. it for him. But uh, I think but like he met with Edison in there and yeah, that kind of thing. I think I'm that's thinking, what yeah. you're thinking of. So one of my favorite secret places, though, that we've mentioned before is the Death Chute. In our season two episode, Abandoned Places, we explored Waverly Hills Sanatorium in my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. Which we will visit later. Oh, we're going to go back? Yeah, to Louisville today. Oh, that's right. You have a story from Louisville. Uh, The tuberculosis hospital, Waverly Hills Sanatorium, was built on top of a big, big hill and opened its doors in 1926 In response to a TB outbreak in the area, at its fullest, the hospital overflowed with more than 400 patients. Oh, wow. And there was a huge turnaround because they were dying and more coming in. There was no cure back then for TB. The only thing that they would really do is uh, fresh air. So there was a lot of terraces where they would put the patients. And uh, many people, of course, didn't make it off that hill alive. So in order to shuttle the dead to the bottom of the hill... Without being seen by the patients, the staff had a tunnel built into the hell- hillside. The hillside. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a lot of the patients well, the title, thought of it right. as a hell. Yeah, was the title of Death Shoot. I mean, why not? <laughs> but they, but they had this this tunnel built from the top of the hill to the bottom in secret, so that they could and and they make it sound like it's a laundry chute where they just yeah. you know throw the bodies in, but that's not what it was. It was created in order for someone to be able to to wheel a gurney yeah. down to uh, a waiting hearse below. Mm. Um, and because of the subject matter of secret spaces, I just have to say that many of our stories in this episode are going to be just as dark as this Waverly Hills uh, death shoot and may not be suitable for young ears. We're going to talk about some crime that involves um, uh, sexual assaults and things like that. Mutilation. So just no, And murder. Right. So just know that. Well, I know mom and I, Leah and I, are both true crime fans. I assume, Phil, you are as well. Uh, but we come across tons of stories Wait, there's where... there's crime in this world? Right, right, <laughs> Wait, right. Sorry, what? The innocent <laughs> Phil, yeah. Uh, we come across tons of stories where the perpetrator uses a secret place, you know, a cellar, an abandoned building, or a secluded alleyway to either commit their crimes or to hide from the authorities after them. 
What is less common is designing and building an entire hotel with the idea of making your crimes easier to commit. That is the story of H.H. Holmes, a man that is given the credit of America's first ever serial killer. H.H. Holmes, by name of Herman Mudgett, which love that name, right? right? Was born into a wealthy family around wait, wait, 18. Wait, wait. H. H. Holmes, right? And his middle name is Mudgett. That's actually his... he went by many names. He was right. kind of a sketchy character, so, so he took H. on M. Holmes, but H. H. I'm H. just stuck H. on Holmes. the middle name starting with an M. No, I think no. The, I think Mudgett is he his was... last name. Oh, okay. Yeah. Holmes, I think, is just a pseudonym. It was a su- it was one okay. of the names that he yeah, but. Okay. Well, Sorry, come to find confused. out, yeah, H.H. <laughs> H. Holmes is just the last pseudonym that he traded under. And so well, that just it, became. That we know of. It, right. Anyway. That, that's the Sorry. one that he became famous for. Got stuck on the so, name. Anyway, by name of Her- Herman Mudgett, was born into a wealthy family around 1861. The exact date is debated, uh, but, you know, he was born into the town of Gilmanton, North, or excuse me, Gilmanton, New Hampshire. Holmes's intelligence was remarkable from a young age, and he had a special interest in medicine. Now, here's where it starts to twist. As a boy, he was so interested in medicine that he would capture small animals in order to perform surgery on them, which if that isn't a huge red flag, I don't know what is. Yeah, that's one of the serial killer trifecta things. And with this being in the early 1800s, I wonder if this is a story that started that. Oh, you know, it could be. Right. You know, study of him and his his behaviors and stuff. Right. Some of his, some accounts of his life even suggest that he may have killed one of his school playmates, which you will come to find is not too far off from his character, though that story has never been corroborated with hard evidence. I, you know, I assume if you're killing small animals, if that's not a red flag, you know, possibly killing one of your playmates and and even being considered in that murder. Then, yeah, that's yeah. a uh, yeah. yeah. Suddenly, Bob just disappeared. <laughs> right. And so did the cat. Yeah. Mudgett attended the University of Michigan to pursue a medical degree, and he was a mediocre student. The times being what they were, he was almost prevented from graduating when a local hairdresser accused him of falsely promising to marry her. And I I say at the time, I I think that kind of happens all of the time now. You know, people make promises that they don't keep. (laughs) I, I just I think that's funny that you could be, you know, potentially kept from having a degree. Yeah, for well, you know, it was breaking a off an engagement. Time, but yeah. I think she dodged a bullet. There. <laughs> yeah, you'll see. Or two. Yeah. Shortly after he secured his degree, Mudgett moved to Chicago, where he began practicing as a pharmacist under the name Doctor H. H. Holmes, a name that would inevitably go down in infamy. The pharmacy he practiced from was owned by a widow that had been convinced to sell the property by Holmes against her late husband's wishes. He didn't really want her to sell it. She disappeared soon after, with Holmes claiming that she picked up and moved to California. He bought the empty lot across the street and began to build what would become the, quote, murder castle that was the stage for many of Holmes's devious acts. The three-story hotel took two years to complete and had many oddities, such as soundproof rooms with gas lines leading into them that Holmes would later use to asphyxiate his guests, stairways leading to nowhere, trap doors, peepholes, and shoots that led into the basement. Now, these were actual shoots, not right, just disguised. Right. Now, being in construction for the last few years myself, I, I find it very hard to believe that no one on the construction crew noticed anything off about the project. Come to find out, Holmes thought about that too. It was said that he would constantly hire and fire new crews in order to keep fresh people on the project that would have no idea about the entire scope of the project. This was difficult, of course, slowing production down quite a bit. 
Holmes required all of his employees, hotel guests, and his many fiancés and wives to have life insurance policies, which he would gladly pay the premium of so long as he was listed as the main beneficiary. Uh, if anyone wants to get on on that, I mean, I would pay. Talk about red flags, <laughs> right? <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Many of these people would simply disappear, leaving Holmes with a healthy insurance paycheck. Many witnesses would claim to see women enter the castle and never come back out. Uh, being an opportunist, when the World's Fair was set to be held in Chicago, Holmes saw an incredible opportunity for his hotel business with droves of out-of-town tourists flooding the area needing a place to stay, potentially alone tourists, you know, young right. women. Traveling out right. of town, right. After being lured into the hotel, many of the guests would never be seen again. The castle had a basement laboratory complete with a Wait window. a minute. A laboratory? Laboratory. Are you British? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I assume, I mean, you just think of, again. here we go. Well, you just think of like, <laughs> you know, evil deeds don't happen in a laboratory. They happen in a laboratory. laboratory. Okay. So, I'll, I'll, I'll allow it. Right. This basement had a... <laughs> This basement had a window-making furnace, uh, and that that's what he told everybody was the purpose of this thing. And he uh, – I don't have it noted here, but uh, the guy that he contracted to build the furnace, he kept, you know, egging him to make it hotter and hotter. And he kept telling him, you know, this is not hot enough to make windows. Uh, and the, the guy saying, you know, I've, I've built many of these furnaces. This is definitely hot enough. And so, uh, you know, come to find out he actually used – that furnace to cremate the remains of his many victims. Holmes well, would murder. Well, well, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, Holmes would murder an unsuspecting guest or romantic partner of his, and then send their bodies down one of the many chutes leading to the basement lab, where he th would then skin them and sell their bones to schools of medicine in the area. These scams left Holmes rich. He was quite the entrepreneur. Oh yeah. I mean, this guy was on top of it. Uh, <laughs> I mean. When, he, when the World's Fair ended and Chicago's economy started to dry up, Holmes took his crimes out on the road. He traveled through the United States, committing insurance fraud all over the place and murdering some people along the way, as you do. You got to keep up appearances. Yeah. Right. Eventually making another small fortune by stealing horses from Texas, the homeland, and selling them in St. Louis. He was eventually caught for this and taken, in, taken to jail. It was in jail that Holmes would... He was caught for... Being a horse thief, mm -hmm. right? Well, well it of was, course, you it's know, it's Texas, Texas, so we right. would definitely catch him for that. And that is like the else. worst crime. You can be yeah. a murderer all you want, yeah, but you steal a don't touch our horses. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Leave him alone. We're gonna hang you high. <laughs> well, it was it was in jail that Holmes would, with his cellmate, concoct the insurance scam that would eventually lead to his capture and indictment for all of the other crimes that the authorities didn't know about at this time. Holmes would take out a ten thousand dollar life insurance policy on himself, fake his own death, then give his cellmate. <laughs> $500 with the promise that he would hire a lawyer in case one was needed. Holmes attempted this plan after being released on bail, but the insurance company was suspicious of him and did not pay up. I imagine if you're coming to collect your own life insurance policy, <laughs> it's a little fishy. Right. Yeah. Photo ID, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Thinking he could still get away with this scam, but under a different circumstance, Holmes attempted a similar crime in Philadelphia with his longtime friend, Benjamin Patezel. He planned to take out a policy on Patezel and have him fake his own death, splitting the proceeds. Uh, he even had his wife in on this plan, Patezel's yeah. wife and kid. Um, in actuality, Holmes 
murdered Patezel and just collected the money for himself. It wasn't long after that his old cellmate, furious that Holmes never paid him, told the authority of Holmes's scams and not long after he was arrested and hanged for his many crimes. I got my information from Britannica.com and CrimeMuseum.org. And there's actually, we we have mentioned many times in the podcast, Eric Larson, who is a great writer, kind of a historical uh, writer. And uh, he did. He wrote about H.H. H. Holmes in his book, Devil in the White City, which I have not read, but I think I think Steve has. More than likely. We've, we've, yeah. yeah, you know what? Anytime <laughs> we mention a book or a play, so Steve's like, yeah, I, I did that. Um, so anyway, it's a fan, he's a fantastic writer. Very, I mean, even though he's writes about history, it's very entertaining and, and just sucks you in. And I have heard really good things about this book. So, um, okay. So, so continuing on in crime, this next story is incredible. Elizabeth Fritzel was an 18-year-old girl living in a small village in central Austria with her mom and dad when she suddenly went missing on August 28, 1984. Her mother quickly filed a missing persons report, but when the search went on for weeks with no sign of Elizabeth, her parents were left to assume the worst. But then a letter arrived. It was from Elizabeth and claimed that she had grown tired of her family and had run away. Her father, Joseph, told police that he had no idea where Elizabeth would have gone, but suggested that she had likely joined a religious cult because she had talked about it, about previously doing that. Years passed. The missing person's case grew cold, and Elizabeth, despite growing up past her rebellious teenage years, never returned home to visit. But she did send an occasional letter. The first letter was attached to the blanket or clothes of a baby left on the Fritzel's doorstep. The note from Elizabeth claimed that she couldn't take care of the baby and was leaving it with her parents for safekeeping. This happened two additional times, with Joseph and Rosemarie Fritzel graciously taking in their three grandchildren and raising them in their house. But all was not what it seemed. Elizabeth never, quote, returned home simply because she had never left. Dun, dun, dun. Wait. On August 28, 1984, that night, Elizabeth went missing her father had called her into the basement to help him with the door he was refitting to the newly renovated cellar. Elizabeth held the door while Joseph fixed it into place. When it was finally installed, Joseph forced Elizabeth through the door and knocked her unconscious using an ether-soaked towel. For the next 24 years, Elizabeth would remain in the labyrinth of rooms that her father had painstakingly and secretly constructed in the cellar just for this scheme of his. 24 years. 24 years. 24 years. And three kids? <clears throat> so far. <laughs> okay, okay, just just stay with me. Wow. In their family, Joseph held supreme power. No one dared question him, so when he disappeared for hours at a time to construct this elaborate set of rooms in the basement... He commanded that no one bother him, and so his family wasn't fully aware of the extent of his construction project. Then, after Elizabeth was imprisoned, Rosemarie didn't think to question Joseph's continued habit of disappearing into the basement for hours, sometimes even overnight. Oh. The rest of the story may not be suitable for children. Oh, no. And so it was that Joseph turned his own daughter into his sex slave. Ugh. Those children that turned up on the doorstep, those were Joseph's own children with Elizabeth, who was forced to live every day underground without ever seeing the sun or going to a doctor. Joseph brought supplies and food to Elizabeth every day at first, and then it petered off to like maybe twice a week or once a week. 
Um, I can't imagine what it was like for her. No. To exactly. hear him coming through the door. First of all, it's got to be relief because what if he had died during this time? Oh, right. Right. She would have just. She would have starved to death. It was, you know, that. So that was a horrible thought, I'm sure, going through her mind. But then also, he was a monster. And I know, listening, you can't see us, but I'm bundled up here, freaked out. You know, I've got goosebumps. (laughs) Twenty four years, and it's your own dad, right? Yes, and and I will say that he had actually. So she, when she went missing, how old did I say she was? Sixteen. 18. No, she was 18 when she went missing, but she had been sexually molested by him since she was 11. Oh. Okay, two years into her captivity, Elizabeth became pregnant, though she miscarried 10 weeks into the pregnancy. Two years later, she became pregnant again, giving birth to a baby girl named Kirsten in August of 1988. Joseph didn't allow Elizabeth to leave to see a doctor or go to the hospital. She gave birth alone in her prison. The, The worst part about it, I think, one of the worst parts, is that She's not, I mean, you're not delivering this child in a hospital setting. You're not even, you know, doing it at a conventional home birth type situation where you've got a, you know, midwife, a midwife. No, she was given supplies by Joseph. I mean, he just, he gave her. And he wasn't even there. Like, I believe, I think I read she was entirely alone for that first birth. Right. And uh, yeah. And I think he gave her a pair of scissors or something for the umbilical mm -hmm. cord. And that was it. Yes. And so anyway. And, anyway. and I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. I think he gave her a book. Maybe. You know. If he was so yes, kind. Yes, it was just, this was horrible. Anyway, so two years later, another baby arrived, and this time a boy she named Stefan. These two children stayed in the basement with Elizabeth, who were who was determined to make their life as normal as she could possibly do it by giving them the school lessons she had once had. I mean, she she really loved these children and wow. took care of them. And they had homeschooling. Of course, you know, she wasn't a teacher. You know, she didn't yeah, she did have she any. With what she had. Right. She didn't have any resources or anything. She just did the absolute best she could. And she decorated it as best she could. I mean, it mm. was. Mm. Anyway. Um, Elizabeth would give, give birth to five more children. Oh, my goodness. Once one more was allowed to stay with her. One died shortly after birth, and the other three were placed on the doorstep outside the house with, along with a letter. Amazingly, social services never questioned the situation. Like, they just accepted that uh, Joseph's story happened. that right. Elizabeth was, you know, outliving her life, uh, you know. And well, you also have no reason to question it. I mean. I, I guess, you know, I don't know. If the. If he's taking stuff down in the basement and none of the family is actually saying anything to anybody else or questioning it themselves, right? they know no different. Well, and I'm, I say this at the end of the article, but honestly, his wife was just as much a victim. Oh, for sure. You Definitely. know, she was yeah. not allowed. There. Yeah, she was not allowed to question him. And she, she thought her daughter went missing. Yep. She truly did. So who long, who knows how long this imprisonment of four of his family members, Joseph, would have continued with or how horrifyingly it would have ended if he were to die. Uh, in 2008, 19-year-old Kirsten, who had never been out of the basement her entire life, became gravely ill. Elizabeth somehow convinced her father to let Kirsten go to a hospital. Grudgingly, her father agreed, and he moved Kirsten upstairs and called for an ambulance. 
He made up a story that he had a note from Kirsten's mother explaining her condition. So kind of like the baby on the doorstep, only now this... 19-year-old just suddenly appeared. That's right. right. Strikingly looks like family. And, the well. yeah, the police became involved at that point because it was, you know, the hospital staff was a little suspicious and the police became suspicious. They were questioning yeah, you know, Kirsten. Probably more malnutrition. And yeah. Yeah, it, that's exactly what it was. She was very malnourished. Yeah. It was Super like scurvy pale, too. or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. this girl had never seen the sun. Um, and so the, the investigation was reopened. Joseph caved under the pressure. Perhaps he was becoming aware of how difficult it was going to be to keep up with the imprisonment in his old age. And on April 26, 2008, he released Elizabeth from the cellar for the first time in 24 years. She immediately went to the hospital to see her daughter, where hospital staff alerted police to her suspicious arrival. I mean, I think he had a story. Yeah. He was trying to, you know, but honestly, at this point, uh, it just wasn't going to work. Elizabeth uh, ta- Elizabeth was taken in and questioned by the police. And after she made them promise that she never had to see her father again, she then told the story of how he had imprisoned her and sexually assaulted her for over two decades that she had been listed as missing. Joseph was arrested that night and the children in the cellar were released. Oh, my goodness. Mm. And again, like I was going to say, don't judge Rosemary too her- harshly. She was completely unaware of what was happening. And also during this time, Elizabeth and her children were down in the basement. The Fritzels actually rented out a room or a little apartment on the first floor of their yeah. their uh, house. And if there was an odd noise or whatever, Joseph told them, you know, it was the, the pipes. It was whatever. They had no clue either. Oh, my goodness. Wasn't so he there, was that good. There was also one tenant, I think, that had a dog. That would, that would bark, bark in, in the, the middle, middle of the, the night. Right. That's right. And right. sent something, and the the tenant could never figure out what it was, so it continued to dismiss it. So but it, you're thinking yeah, but it was kind of yeah, it was kind of yeah. one of those hindsight. Now, okay, right. now the dog right. seems, something was up in that room but, behind right. the wall. Weird. Um, today, Elizabeth and her children live under new identities to protect them from the media, and as far as we know, have gone on to try to live as normally as they can. Mm. During his trial, Joseph admitted guilt on an incest charge, but pled innocent to enslavement and to the murder of his child. After, <laughs> well, it, after he saw Elizabeth Fritzel's taped testimony, though, he changed his plea to full guilt, acknowledging that his failure to secure medical care for the newborn may have directly contributed to his death or her death. We don't know if it was a girl or boy. For his crimes, Fritzel was found guilty on all accounts, negligent murder, enslavement, incest, rape, coercion, and false imprisonment. He was sentenced to life in prison in 2009. Oh, my gosh. He now suffers from advanced dementia. Oh, and I I just want to say that solitary confinement, that is very fitting. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Very fitting. Just would be better with no windows. But now he is, uh, he suffers from advanced dementia and none of his family has ever visited him. Why would they? So. Who? That's right. <laughs> right. I got my info from allthatsinteresting.com and aetv.com. Another crime story involving a secret room is that of the, quote, locked room murder, a seemingly impossible to solve mystery. Walburga Korschel, known as Dolly, was a German immigrant that grew up on a humble farm. She married a wealthy apron factory owner by the name of Fred Osterreich, in her early 20s, if that's not a German name. Yeah, yeah. I was drank. But an apron factory? I just didn't know. I mean, I, mean, I, guess, I guess in that there's time. factories you know. to make aprons, but I mean, wow. They have to have them. Yeah. I know. You just, I don't know. I just didn't think that like it would be, 
it would be like a garment factory that makes right. all kinds of things. But no, this one's it's just dedicated if, for aprons. I wonder if but you have to wear to be an wealthy, apron. They have to be really good aprons. I yeah. guess. I guess. <laughs> they even they even put monikers on them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the couple settled in Milwaukee, but their happily ever after was not to be. Fred was an alcoholic and Dolly was sexually unsatisfied. Oh, wow. You needed to. Just go right out there and say <laughs> Okay. Wait, wait, yeah. Hey, guess what? <laughs> yeah. One day, Dolly's Singer sewing machine stopped working. Fred had a 17-year-old employee that worked in his factory, Otto San Huber, that he knew was a skilled repairman. So he sent Otto over to their house. Mrs. Ostreich, Dolly, 33 at the time, answered the door wearing nothing more than a silk robe and stockings. Oh. Ow, ow. <laughs> I love a line from my source material at atlasobscura.com where they say, quote, in the master bedroom, the dusty old singer machine remained untouched. The same could not be said for Mrs. Osterow. <laughs> that like a joke that she's dusty oh, and old yeah. too. Oh, yeah, dusty. <laughs> Both dusty and old. That, okay. day, that day would begin a decades-long affair between the two. In the beginning of their affair, Otto and Dolly would meet in hotels, but it didn't take long for them to throw caution to the wind and pursue their carnal pleasures on the Osterreich's own (laughs) wedding bed. Mind you, this is the early 1910s, a time marked by conservative moralism. People weren't sleeping around so much. Uh, well, well, no, well, just well, behind, recording yeah. it as much. Right, yeah. behind closed doors anyway. <laughs> it wasn't long before the neighbors started to notice a strange young man frequently visiting the household. He's the pool boy. Right, right. Well, <laughs> Dolly would tell these nosy neighbors that Otto was her vagabond half-brother and leave it at that. <laughs> that okay. Was Dolly knew that wasn't sustainable and that her husband would find out if they weren't careful, so she came up with a plan. Otto would quit his job and move into the Osterreich's attic. Fred never went up there anyway, and that meant the lovers could continue their tryst away from prying eyes. The biggest caveat was that Otto would have to essentially give up his entire life to Dolly, as there was no way that he could leave the house without risking being caught. Otto didn't mind. He had no family to speak of, and he was obsessed with Dolly, later telling the LA Times that he had grown to love her as a, quote, boy loves his mother. Oh. Ooh. Okay, Especially yeah. awkward. And That's Sitting across weird. from my own mother. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hang on. Oh, leave the rubber chicken alone. No, okay, so we got to just stop and, just and reflect weird. the fact that she he was 17, she was 33 at the time that it began. Started, right. So that was, oh, wow, that's yeah. a huge age difference. And yeah, I mean, okay. Sugar mama, you know? <laughs> I mean, at this I, point, yeah, because you're living in her attic and she can come see you whenever I, I'm she a wants. married man, but I could use a sugar mama. I oh, mean, come on. I'm telling. <laughs> on. Yeah. I'm telling. The attic that housed Otto was humble, only having enough space for a cot and a tiny desk. He would keep his mind busy with the many nautical fiction books that Dolly would bring home. This would instill a dream in Otto to one day write pulp fictions of his own. Uh, for those of you that don't know what a pulp fiction is, it's it's kind of an advanced smut. Uh, so these are, you know, highly sexualized books that would have, yeah. you know, cover pictures of, you know, women. Scanton clad. Yeah, yeah. like and so, Fabio. Yeah, so I, yeah. <laughs> right. I wonder if he opened the door and there's, a... right. I wonder if he opens the door this first time and, and there's Dolly and he just recalls all of those books that he had been obsessed with. And, you know, he's thinking oh. this is a dream come true. Oh, my gosh. You know? Well, you know. Maybe that's just color for the report. A 17-year-old boy right. at the time, right. too. So. Didn't need much. Yeah. 
By 1918, Otto had been living in their attic for five years. Wow. Coming down during the day to do the diddly with Dolly. I cannot believe you wrote that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, he wasn't just there for that. He kept, he helped her keep house and make bathtub gin. Oh, okay. Is well, that a euphemism or fuel, is that no, real no, like moonshine? Yeah, full for fuel for pleasure, hustle. you know. Okay. Wow. He even published one of his <laughs> own stories under a pen name uh, a pulp fiction he was able to publish one of course dolly was the one that did all of the you know carry work to the publisher but he got one published he's doing things he's really moving up in the world (laughs) meanwhile moving up to the attic meanwhile fred began to question his sanity he would see shadows cross the bedroom door in the middle of the night he noticed that his cigars would go missing and he constantly heard noises coming from the attic Deducing that he just needed to get the heck out of Milwaukee, Fred told Dolly they were going to pack up and move to Los Angeles. Dolly agreed on one condition. The house had to have an attic. <laughs> I can't imagine seriously I, going to your husband and you know saying, there is this one condition. Uh, we gotta have it's got to be a traditional it, it, it's, house. You know. it, it's better than saying, hey, it needs a basement. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> She sent Otto ahead of them, and by the time the Osterreichs moved into their new home, Otto, now 22 years old, was already comfortably situated in his new attic abode. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> right. <laughs> Los Angeles was nothing that Fred had hoped it would be. I mean, the yeah, problem that you're having there is following you. Even if you don't know what the problem is, it's, it's there. Yeah, right. Your baggage uh, arrived ahead of time. Right. That's right. But in addition to that, his marriage to Dolly was just deteriorating fast and he couldn't seem to keep himself away from the bottle his alcoholism was compounding during a particularly raucous fight between the two on august 22nd 1922 otto fearing the safety of his mistress flew down from the attic and brandished two of fred's 25 caliber pistols and shot his rival three times in the chest killing him instantly if i've got two pistols i'm shooting more than three shots Maybe those are just the ones that hit. Maybe he was just really good. (laughs) Yeah. And it it did the job. Left, right, left. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Dolly flew into action immediately in order to cover up her lover's involvement. She and Otto staged the house to look like a home invasion gone wrong. Otto took Fred's diamond watch that he always wore and locked Dolly in the closet before fleeing the scene back into his attic. Once tucked away, Dolly began howling until one of her neighbors called the police who quickly came to investigate. Finding the body of Fred, they proceeded with caution to the closet where Dolly's voice was coming from. They found the key and unlocked the door and started to question Dolly as to what happened. I didn't write it down, but I think the key was in another room under some furniture or something, you know, kind of staged as if the killer just kind of tossed it. Yeah. The police had no reason to question Dolly's story. After all, there was no way she could have locked herself in the closet So she would go on to happily collect her inheritance of millions of dollars from this apron business and bought a nice new home with a comfy, large attic. (laughs) Wait, wait. She's still stuck in the attic? Right. right. Why why might she still need an attic for Otto with her husband out of the way? Well, the nature of their attraction was based on dominance and submission, with Otto later saying that he was a slave to his love for Dolly. Oh, wow. Which is... So Otto continued to stay in his newly furnished attic without a single complaint. Okay. Dolly started dating her lawyer, Herman Shapiro, on the side and began to make some incriminating mistakes. Firstly, she gifted Herman the diamond watch that she had reported as stolen during her husband's murder. Oops. Right. Herman recognized the watch and asked about it. I mean, after all, Fred had 
I mean, he was known he was for one, yeah, yeah, he was known for wearing this watch. It's it's an uncommon watch, and here he is and being gifted it. He's the lawyer, right, right. Uh, and he asked about it, but Dolly said that she uh, she had later found it under a couch cushion and didn't want to bother the police with it. You know, so innocent. <laughs> Secondly, Dolly had also had another lover of hers, Roy Klum, dispose of the murder weapons in a nearby tar pit on the night of the murders. So this isn't the only affair she's having. I mean, this is one of many. Yeah. And Otto. And you can't tell a secret to more. You like. Right. Too many people know. Right. At this point. Yeah. In 1923, following a nasty breakup. Clum, the one that got rid of the murder weapons, contacted the authorities and confessed to disposing of the weapons. Mm-hmm. The police opened the investigation into Dolly, but still were baffled as to how Dolly could have locked herself in the closet. So they released her from custody. They didn't have anything. Right. During her hearings, Dolly had Shapiro, that lawyer, deliver food to her vagabond half-brother living in her attic, and he was happy to do so. Upon meeting Shapiro, Otto was so starved for any contact from the world that he began to just ramble on about his life, including his affair with Dolly. <laughs> I mean, you're telling that to her boyfriend who's thinking he's right, exclusive. You know? right. Shapiro was not happy with this and promptly kicked him out of the house. The frightened Otto fled to Canada. He's out of there. By 1930, Herman and Dolly's relationship was coming to a bitter end. So she's running through guys. I mean, this is... <laughs> Feeling spiteful. Revolving door. Right. Yeah. Feeling spiteful, Shapiro told authorities of the existence of Otto, who had recently moved back to Los Angeles, conveniently, after this relationship had ended. Otto and her. He just suddenly shows up. Right. They're yeah. back in the same mm. area. Uh, the authorities quickly moved to arrest the couple, and once the papers got a hold of this particularly scrumptious piece of gossip, Otto and Dolly had a passe of paparazzi following them everywhere. The jury found Otto Sanhuber guilty of manslaughter on July 1st, but as the statute of limitations was seven years and the trial was held eight years after the crime, Otto's charges were dropped. Dolly was acquitted for her charges of conspiracy and soon after found a new lover whom she kept for 30 years and eventually married. She died a free woman in 1961. Oh my gosh, (laughs) nobody gets... Right. Gets it in the end. Oh. 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 And it, okay. And it's horrible because when I hear crime stories and I hear stuff like this, I'm like, you are so dumb. Why oh, did I you know. do, you know, I'm like, I know. I'd have done it this way. <laughs> well, I got my information from atlasobscura.com and the latimes.com. Interestingly, I mean, I'm getting it from the website that originally reported it, the LA Times did back oh, yeah, in 1930. Way so, back then. Yeah. First hand information there. Wow. <laughs> Okay, so let's take a break from murder and mayhem, okay? Whitaker Wright. What a name, right? Whitaker was a character, an unforgettable one. And in 1890, Whitaker, a self-made millionaire, and I use big finger quotes on self-made millionaire. did he print his own? I I, I hear the comment. I just got to ask. Okay, just listen to the story. We'll get into it. But he he actually was a millionaire. He was rolling in money. He bought and renovated a 32-room mansion on a 9,000-acre lavishly landscaped estate near located near the British village of Whitley. 20 bucks. Whitaker. I love his name. Whitaker Wright. Whitaker Wright. He was, like I said, absolutely rolling in money and loved spending it. Probably the best known example of his lavish indulgences was the smoking room he had constructed. Does this guy need friends? Well, okay. <laughs> well, okay. Wait, yeah. wait, just listen. 
He that does. sounds great so far. <laughs> yeah, unlike good. unlike the people of the the previous story, this one doesn't end so well. Mm. Um, while not exactly a secret, the room was hidden beneath one of the three man-made lakes on his property. While he can, it's yeah, under. It was under, under a lake. Three lakes. No, it was, it was under one. One of the one of one of the three. One of the three on the nine thousand right acres. This place on Airbnb. Can <laughs> right? we go? Seriously, Listen, it go. still exists. I'm going to oh. tell you about it. Nice. So while he constructed it to be a quote unquote smoking room, those who saw it were quick to call it a ballroom. No matter what you call it, the room was stunning. The underwater room is ex- is accessed by a spiral staircase leading down to a vaulted tunnel under the lake. The tunnel then opens into a large circular room under a domed, windowed aquarium roof that lets in the natural sunlight filtered through the water of the lake. It's glorious. That's We're, awesome we'll right there. pictures. Come on. It's also now, after all these years, moldy. pretty wet down there. <laughs> moldy. <laughs> well, yes. The room still exists all these years, but silt has, has built up on the sides of the, like, yeah. the on the sides of it. Also, yeah. So it covers the first two rows of windows. And then the rest of the windows are covered in this algae. So there's this, so it's all green. Like the light coming through is so green. It's, a, it's an emerald color. And everything. Yeah. Nice. But it's still really cool. cool. Well, Looking. You know, look, I live in Waco and Magnolia is just crazy over there with Fixer Upper and everything. I'm thinking hey, this is like, come on, new episode. Upper, that's right. right. They could just come on, Chip and Joanna. Let's go. Yeah. Squeegee the windows. That's what he forgot to do was just hire a lake boy. Yeah, that's right. Snorkel, here you go, bud. Come on. Here's your squeegee. Okay. So water is very hard to control. No. And for really? extended periods of time. So the floors, walls, everything is damp and moldy in there today. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Um, it's But it's still spectacular to see. And I couldn't find any information on it, but I don't think people are allowed in there. Well, it's probably not. Um, yeah, because probably yeah. structurally they're worried, you know, about that. Water has an ability to uh, go anywhere and find a way in. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And once and, it does, it's no longer stable. And right. we're going to have pictures on our social media. And you can tell, like, the floor is wet. There's little puddles everywhere and oh, stuff. So I bet in its heyday it was Amazing. Mm. I know. And, and and it is 130 years old. So it could come crashing down at any moment. But what you can see, though, is the statue of Neptune on the top of the dome roof. He seems to be like rising out of the water in the middle of the lake. This and guy can was you imagine? This yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, like, I want to be his friend. Can you imagine seeing it all lit up oh, under oh, the lake? Oh, so Whitaker Wright's wealth didn't last long as it was built on illegal investments and business dealings <laughs> in which so he stood trial right. in 1904. He was sentenced to seven years in prison by the Royal Courts of Justice. Whitaker wouldn't go to prison, though. He wasn't having that. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. let my man go. He Come was on. found in a small side room of the court lying dead on the floor. Oh, never mind. Never there mind. was a revolver in his out. pocket. <laughs> yeah. There was a revolver in his pocket presumed to be used as a backup in case the cyanide pill he had swallowed didn't quite do the trick. But it did. Oh. And so ended the larger-than-life epic story of Whitaker Wright. Oh. I mean, if you're living in a place with a dome under Neptune in the middle of this lake. I know. It, prison? I mean, yeah. come on. Prison's yeah. not. Yeah, it's yeah. just not going to do it for right. you. Yeah. And I've got it. a picture, a drawing bland. of the guy. He's very, like, <laughs> pinky up, He's very distinguished monocle. looking. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I got my info, and we are really using Atlas Obscura a lot. We love uh, it. We well, love the Atlas site's Obscura. Amazing. Uh, got it from Atlas Obscura and a March 2020 article by Katarina Papa uh, Papa Then a Seal. 
And if you're looking for a podcast to sponsor, (laughs) we'd gladly have conversation (laughs) with you. Uh, For TheVailMagazine.com. And now for something completely off topic and off kilter. Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. Okay, so for today's oddity, you know, time is such a weird thing. We've talked about it before, how time can get wonky in our Time Warp episode from earlier this year. The different ways we've invented to keep up with time can get a little bizarre as well. So you remember when you had a thing, Sam, for uh, the Beatles? Who didn't? <laughs> I mean, come well, on. Well, true, but... Uh, oh my gosh, Guinness! You listened to them for, for you quite started a while. it. I, I think I you got me hooked on the Beatles uh, uh, one album. No, the... it wasn't me. It was your friend uh, Jonathan. Oh it was yeah, Jonathan. Anyway, I, so I, I will shout say out this. to Jonathan. I, I will say this: if you're going to if you're going to let your kids or your people listen to music, give them the whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Mm-hmm. Introduce true. them to the whole genre and. Especially the beginning of rock and roll. Well, I was also <laughs> going to say, I mean, the Beatles are every genre. Exactly. I mean, you could, they go back and forth all of the time. I mean, different. shoot, for this generation's, or for at least the last couple, video game made a, a video game was made just out of the Beatles called Rock Band. Oh, I yes. know. Of the entire Beatles albums, or at least yeah. the majority of them. This is so Jonathan funny. Jonathan had that game. We played the heck out of it. The yeah. Beatles really have a very tenuous connection to this story. <laughs> <Yeah>. well, <laughs> but I course, bring it up because of their song, song <laughs> right. Eight Days a Week. Uh-huh. Do you know? Okay, so you know the song, Eight, Eight Days a Week. Eight Days a Week. Yep. It's not enough. Well, I, I'm, yeah. I'm not comfortable with singing on mic, but that's how hey, it's it goes. Yeah, that. yeah. that's <laughs> right. Okay. So you know it. At least well, we carried that traditional forward. Sorry, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have his baritone. <laughs> well, there was a time in 1867 when one particular state in the U.S. experienced a week consisting of eight days instead of just seven. Ooh. Anybody have any guesses? Arizona. Arizona? What do you idea. say, Sam? Uh, I mean, Utah's got all sorts of weird things going on. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> but it hey, does. But hey, if we're going back to Louisville, it's going to be Kentucky. Oh, you know yeah, what? True. Hey, true. what? No, no, no. Wrong on all counts. What if I gave you the hint, Seward's Folly? Oh, gosh. Seward's Folly. Where is that from? Okay. So the United States purchased Alaska from Russia in 1867 through the negotiations of Secretary of State. I do remember this. W.H. Seward. I thought you would. I'm so sorry, uh, Steve, Mr. Meeker, as I usually called him. I'm failing your history class Of course, there was about (laughs) 20,000 other people listening to this as we produced it. And they're all going, how could you two not know this? Yeah, you know. And while Sam was Of course it's Alaska. Dr. Meeker taught two of my kids uh, history, but Sam wasn't one of them, however. Yeah, we, we wanted to touch on this earlier, but I knew Dr. Meeker just because he was such a cool guy. Uh, I was, my last class of the day was uh, gym. This is in junior high, by the way. Right. Well, so sixth just a grade. Couple years ago. Sixth grade. Yeah. Uh-huh. So middle school. Uh, anyway. Yeah. A couple of years ago. Right. Uh, and Dr. Meeker would open his classroom to just random students because he would play Looney Tunes as we were mm-hmm. waiting for the bus. And so instead of sitting in a room, large, cold room full of sweaty kids, I opted to go across the hall to Dr. Meeker's room where I would watch Looney Tunes and wait well, for the bus. Yeah, that's a better education. Oh, definitely. <laughs> and, you know, that, that's just my core memory of Dr. Meeker. Yes. He's and, been and that's, really good to us. That's pretty. That's a pretty good uh apt memory that explains his classroom very, very well. Um, Back to this story. (laughs) 
So the press started calling the acquisition of Alaska Seward's Folly because despite the large bar, because despite the bargain price of $7 million, roughly two cents an acre, Mm -hmm. the mostly frozen land seemed like a worthless waste of government money. People changed their tune, however, when gold was discovered in 1898, and the Alaskan Territory has since proven to be rich in many different resources. Absolutely. But getting back to the time slip, Alaska officially became part of the United States on Friday, October 18th, 1867. And for the people living in Alaska, it was you know pretty seamless changeover except for one thing, the calendar. <laughs> the United States was using – and we've talked about calendars oh, before. Yes, we were sure. using the Gregorian calendar – the one we still use, but Russia was using the Julian calendar. When Alaska switched countries, it also switched calendars, which required a shift from October 6th, 1867, which was a Friday, to October 19th, 1867, a Saturday in the Gregorian system. Alaska would lose 12 days that year. But at least it still had the weekend, right? <laughs> Somewhere. <laughs> they just um, landed on it. <laughs> yeah, so the eight days a week, did you get a three-day no, weekend? <laughs> wait, wait. The other glitch had to do with time zones. While Alaska was part of Russia, the international date line ran between Alaska and Canada, putting Alaska in the same time zone as Russia and on a different day altogether than the yeah. U.S. Mm. So that couldn't continue when the ch- territory changed hands. So the easy fix was to shift the international dateline to the other side of Alaska. But in doing so, Alaska gained a day. Okay. Okay. So they, they lost, lost 12, 12 so gained, gained one. one back. Um, so instead of going from Friday, October 6th to Saturday, October 19th, it went from Friday. It went to from Friday the 6th to Friday the 18th. <laughs> I can probably just, I, it, it's kind of Groundhog Day right? anybody? I, I can imagine you know 10 guys sitting around a, you know a round table just trying, trying to, to figure, just this figure this out just you know just looking up at the ceiling tiles thinking golly how do we fix this predicament you know and then coming yeah. to Friday to Friday and you think daylight savings Friday. time is crazy <laughs> yeah, right it's yeah. still Friday um, but it's probably the only time in history that there were two Fridays back to back in one place. Oh, I got terrible. my information from the Now I Know email do, uh, newsletter by Dan Lewis and History.com. Oh, wow. People purchase homes all of the time and end up finding hidden portions of the house or hidden rooms that are either not visible from the outside at all or hardly even visible from the inside of the house, being hidden in crawl spaces, behind bookcases, or even below carpeted floors. Taking that idea to the next level is when you live in a place and don't know there's a secret space, but someone else knows. When someone takes up residence in an unlived in or an abandoned house or building, they are known as squatters. But sometimes a squatter will secretly take up residence in the attic or crawl space of a home that is being lived in. They hide while the residents are at home, uh, but when they are gone, the squatters will take advantage of the food Mm -hmm. in the kitchen, uh, the bathroom facilities, and generally make themselves... At, at home. home. I had a bunch of those. Those They called call themselves them kids. But <laughs> a couple of them still. Yeah, yeah. that's right. A couple, a couple of them haven't been kicked those out yet. The squatters haven't left yet. I am not one of those. I moved out. I'm very proud. Apartment <laughs> renter. Uh, this is called frogging, uh, spelled with P-H. And depending on how stealthy you are, I know frogging, and depending on how stealthy they are, the frogger can live like this long term without the residents finding out about it. Which is creepy as all get out. How do you not yeah. notice that you had six Dr. Peppers yesterday or when you left this morning well, and then you come back and there's only five? 
Well, my wife lies all of the time about the food that she's consumed, and <laughs> so I could very easily see some chocolate going missing. Yeah, I think it's Honey, harder. Honey, I swear I didn't. You like know. if you if you're you living alone, I'm just gonna ask. Do I sleepwalk? Yes. No. Do you I... know that you don't? Uh, I mean, see, I feel like <laughs> see, there's all kinds of ways to justify it, and I'm, you know, maybe I just forgot what that kind. Of, if you're living alone, I can see that this would this really would be, be an issue. Yeah. But if you're living with, you know, if there's two of you living there or more, yeah, you, you know, got, yeah, uh, yeah, you got well, kids. Look, yeah, food wise, yeah, look, me going. and my brothers would hoard food. That's if we, right. I find it under the bed. Yeah, if we had like, if if mom and dad bought a pack of chips, and we knew that the uh, like I a mean, variety pack. Yeah, if we knew like the Doritos were going to be gone within a day, we would take like two bags each and go hide them somewhere so that the other brothers wouldn't have access to it. Uh And now now I'm blaming that on the other brothers. I know I did it and I assume they did it too, Mm -hmm. but I don't have evidence for that. So uh, I guess innocent until proven guilty. But 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 I definitely did it. Food going missing all the time that just never even, it was was status quo. Yeah, that variety of pack of chips was down to the Fritos within 48 hours. That's right. Those are some of the best ones. Throw some cheese on those bad boys and, and some, nail them. Yeah, some wolf brand chili. <laughs> exactly. Oh. The froggers often come out of hiding at night while the residents are asleep. They roam the house, moving things, eating food, as we said, in many times. the dog, cat, because they know they're there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and many times they, they even steal things. As you can imagine, this is a huge invasion of privacy and security. And when the crime is found out, a lot of the times the residents face a big hurdle to overcome the psychological violation. How do you come to terms with the fact the that somebody – upstairs for someone. Yeah. yeah. I mean when somebody just breaks into your home, that's a huge yeah. thing to get over psychologically. But right. imagine like you're thinking back and wow. somebody was watching you sleep. That is crazy. Wow. Eating, eating a bag of Fritos. Right. So, eating a Fritos. <laughs> well, with that in mind – I'll turn it over to you, Mom. Uh, You have a story about this? I do. A ghost story that is not a ghost story. In 1986, Annie and Jessica Andrews were teenage sisters who had tragically lost their mother to cancer and really missed her. Their mother's somewhat sudden death, so it wasn't like a long, drawn-out thing. It it was pretty sudden. Uh, It shook the family to its core, and they struggled to find a new normal. Their dad, Brian, had to start working a lot more hours to make ends meet, and so he left Annie and Jessica alone at home a lot. He worked second shift, so he didn't get home until late into the night or maybe even early in the morning hours. So they were home alone a lot together at night. Annie and Jessica were hit really hard by the loss of their mother, so one night they decided to play around with a Ouija board. Smart. Yeah. This always goes well. Well, I mean, it's teenagers, you know. I I can see it. I'd play a Ouija Um, board for you, Mom. (laughs) To to contact me after my death? Because that's what they were doing. I know you'd be sitting right there waiting for it. Oh, hush. Listen to that. I don't need a Ouija board. I'm just going to haunt you. Um, Out of all of her kids? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Probably. (laughs) The rest of them, No, she'll come after you. (laughs) No, you would find a way to talk to me. Just to continue talking. (laughs) I know you're sitting right there. Okay, let's blood in. Anyway, the girls really, they didn't expect anything to happen. They just wanted some connection to their mom. So they held a little seance, but nothing happened, and after a while, they returned upstairs. That night, as they were both lying in bed, they had separate rooms. They had each had their separate rooms. They were lying in bed trying to fall asleep. Both of the girls started hearing tapping noises. Jessica got up and went into Annie's room, and they listened together to the tapping noises. They missed their mom so much, they were really kind of hoping that the tapping sounds were communications from their mom's ghost. So they began asking questions. The tapping sounds were responding correctly 
to the questions. It was scary, but it was also kind of reassuring to them. This makes me think of Inception. Oh, yeah. Okay. This is, yeah, this is a scary, scary story. When Brian got home, the girls told him what was happening, but he thought they were making it up. He was very concerned and thought that it was a, a really unhealthy part of the grieving process and maybe he should get the girls into counseling. The tapping continued for several days, but it changed from feeling reassuring to being downright annoying. The tapping would continue all throughout the night, disturbing Jessica and Annie's sleep. Dad never heard this. Well, no, because it never happened when he was home. Oh. Um, when they would have their dad come in to hear the tapping, it would stop. Mm. So he never heard it. Anytime all three of them would leave the house, when they returned, it seemed that things would be like just slightly out of place. Uh, furniture moved around just a little bit. Annie, uh, Annie and Jessica were insisting that it was the ghost of their mom who was in the house, but Brian wasn't having it. Yeah, exactly. If things it, were moving around. Yeah. Right. Well, I don't. And think I just buried my wife. He thought <laughs> he thought he he began to get a little angry with them at the links they were going. He thought it was them doing it oh. in order to convince him that the tapping was real, and he, he just it was not healthy. Right. They well, were playing you, off of each other. Also, and imagine what alone, he's going through. I mean, his yeah. wife has just passed away. And now his daughters are hearing things. I mean, this, this guy's world is coming down. Yeah. This yeah. family has really gone through it. And unfortunately, they're going to go through much more. Oh, no. Um, he began to get, like I said, angry at the links they were going to convince him and told him, told them it was not healthy. And on top of it, he felt incredibly guilty that he had to leave them alone so often. He told them, that though, that if they didn't stop this whole ghost thing, he was going to make them go to counseling. The girls were in turmoil. They felt like completely alone, and now they're afraid to be in their own own home. The knocks had progressed to the point where the girls no longer thought it was their mother, and they were scared to be alone in the house at night. Oh, wow. They now thought they had invited an evil ghost to come in through the Ouija board, and they had just pretended that had had just pretended to be their mom at first, but had now progressed to tormenting them and keeping them awake at all hours. The situation took a turn in January of 1987. The girls were home alone and in the living room when they started to hear sounds coming from the basement. They were frustrated at the whole situation and decided to confront the problem. This is how horror stories, horror movies happen. You don't go in the basement alone. Um, But together they headed down into the basement. But as soon as they reached the bottom of the steps, the tapping stopped. Frustrated, they turned around to go back up the stairs, and they that's when they saw a note written in red on the wall saying, I'm in your closet. Come and find me. Ooh. Oh, yeah, I mean, that, that's like, yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, they house. did not go to the closet. They they uh, they left the home. They ran yeah. out, and they ran to a neighbor's home. Oh, but uh, and can they even tell their dad? Well, no, like, they did. To their credit, they they waited. Well, I mean, yeah, but one what thing, is he going to believe them? Is my thing. okay? So here's the thing: they waited till he got home, and they're like, okay, now there's proof, right? There's proof, and of they course, they didn't bring it with them. He's not. Well, it would. Is he went into the house and he looked at the the note was still there. Oh, okay. It was still it was written Stupid on the wall. Ghost. And um, right. but <laughs> you know, when faced with uh, what, what are you going to believe? There's a ghost, or that your daughters are have just taken this turn to right. a very unhealthy. Well, even I mean, you'd even be willing to accept mental illness too. Yeah, something uh, you know, like that. You know, he just—he was or... so concerned, and so he did. He called counseling. He started uh, them with counseling sessions. He called the called it the very next day. 
Several weeks went by with nothing happening, no tapping or anything, but then... Oh, boy. One night when Brian was working late in the night and the girls were home alone, they started hearing tapping again. They followed the sounds to Annie's bedroom where they found another note written on the wall that said, I'm back. Find me if you can. Again, they ran out of the house to the neighbor's house, waited for their dad to come home and told him. And again, he is frustrated. He's at his wit's end. Mm. And so he told them to stay there at the neighbor's house. He's going to go into the house, search it from top to bottom. Okay. Uh So when he goes to the house and he opens the door, he couldn't believe his eyes. The house had been completely ransacked. Drawers pulled out and emptied. Things knocked off shelves. And at this point, he knew his girls did not do this. Right. Good. This is when he changed his mind. He was on edge as he started methodically searching the entire rest of the house. Yeah. Well, you're also thinking back to. I mean, if if you finally come to terms that this, I mean, this is the the evidence that. This is not, not the girls. Them, yeah. You're thinking back to all of those other times. Right. Exactly. Like, who is this? You know? Right. Yes. So, uh, it was, you know, the house was dead silent. There was no tapping, nothing. And he is looking room to room methodically. He went up the stairs to Annie's bedroom. He saw the writing on the wall. Yeah. And then as he turned to survey the room, Brian saw a man standing inside Annie's closet. Oh. The man was wearing women's clothes that Brian recognized as his wife's clothes, and he was holding a hatchet. A moment passed while the two men just stared at each other, taking in the situation. Then suddenly the guy in the closet rushed past Brian and ran away out into the house. Brian chased after him, but the guy disappeared. Like, all of a sudden, like, you couldn't find him. He disappeared. And that's when Brian thought, well, maybe, you know, the dude's got an axe. Maybe I shouldn't be chasing him. Arson. So that's when I, he... I had set the house ablaze. <laughs> it's over. Yeah. Well, Get that's, that's not what right. he did. Maybe, maybe that's what you would have done. But he went to the neighbor uh, next door where his daughters were, and he called the police. When the police arrived, they looked through the entire house top to bottom, and they couldn't find anyone. And um, and and they couldn't figure out where this guy went. Because, I mean, you know, he's not going to just, like, run down the street in women's clothes and yeah. see him. It, mm. it is in the middle of the night, but... Still, you um, wouldn't run down the middle. It, it's, yeah, I mean, you right. would think somebody would see him, but they nobody could tell where this guy went. And they believed the story, but there was really nothing that they could do if they couldn't find anyone. So, um, Brian, and again, Brian couldn't understand how the guy got away, but they decided... Brian, Annie, and Jessica to go stay with family. And the police would then keep an eye on the the house. house, Right. Mm -hmm. So Brian felt horrible for not believing Annie and Jessica and for leaving them alone in the house with with, this lunatic. This creepy dude. The girls felt traumatized from having lived with and communicated with this guy for so long and being convinced it was their mom. Yeah, you're pit pals with the guy for a little while. Yeah. Um, I mean, and he's in your room. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, so... They couldn't stay away forever, though. And so after two weeks, they decided to move back home and had planned to get a security system installed, cameras everywhere. Uh, But as they were driving up the street back to the house, Brian saw that a window on the second floor of the house was lit up. He knew he had turned off all the lights, and he really didn't think that the police had gone in the house. Right. So as he's looking at the window, he all of a sudden sees a guy in a dress walk across the window. He stopped the car and called police immediately. Right. Police surrounded the house, and then they carefully went inside. No one, not Brian or the girls or even police, had entered the house in two weeks, but it was apparent that somebody had been inside the house. 
the furniture had all been knocked over or just turned upside down. And oddly, this is so weird. This is what makes it really creepy to me. It's not only creepy. It's already creepy. I mean, it's already creepy, but there were pennies glued to the ceiling all over throughout the house. I mean, you don't you don't decorate your house I mean, that way. Yeah. I mean, just pennies glued to the ceiling. I mean, and who there can was afford writing. nickels or dimes. Yeah, so I don't, right. yeah. And, and there was writing economy? all over the walls in red. Yeah. Um which turned out be lipstick. No, it turned yeah. I think it turned out to be ketchup or something. <laughs> it wasn't blood, but it was red and Well, who tasted and, that to figure yeah, it out? I, yeah. Well, I'm sure they did something to figure out if it was somebody's blood. Anyway, so listen. One observant uh officer finally found the entrance to a crawl space behind the washer and dryer in the basement. Inside, they found that somebody had tunneled through the insulation through to different rooms of the house and had poked peepholes in all of the rooms. Uh, police found and apprehended a teenaged boy that would turn out to be Danny LaPlante, a boy Annie had briefly dated in the past. Oh, when, when Anna, not Anna, I'm sorry, Annie. when Annie broke it off with Danny, he had entered their house and started living in the crawl space, spying on the family and listening to their conversations. He lived there for months, all through the loss of Annie and Jessica's mom. Oh, yeah. Super creepy guy. Danny yeah. was arrested and put in a detention center, I guess because of his age. Not a, a mental detention center? Yeah, right. No. And then later in 1987, when Danny was let out of the detention center, he then broke into someone else's house. Things were very different this time. Oh, yeah. LaPlante sexually assaulted and murdered oh, a pregnant mother. Oh. and a her pregnant two, mother? Yes. And mm. her two small children. I think they were age seven and nine. He is currently serving multiple life sentences. Oh my As he should. Wow. My information came from uh, the Bis- Mr. Ballin YouTube series, Terrifying Secrets in the Basement, and Wikipedia. Oh, wow. Ugh. Creepy dude. Yeah. Yep. Got the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> well, for my last story, let's take a look at uh, something a little less murdery and nasty. Uh, this is the... I'm going to talk about the viral sensation of... 8800 Blue Lick Road. If that's not a, if that's not ringing any bells, this, <laughs> you know, uh, this seemingly innocuous house located in Louisville, Kentucky, mm-hmm. became a, st- a spectacle after a 3D tour of the home began began circulating online in 2020. The home, formerly belonging to Bonaventure Boulevard Church of Christ, had a distinguishably odd layout attributed to the church's continual renovations and additions in order to accommodate its growing demands. The church was later sold and became the warehouse of a fencing operation where thousands of random items were stored as they were bought and sold by the new owners. You know, they ran an internet, you know, yeah, you say Resell. fencing. I'm thinking like fencing, like pickets and things like that. You're talking when, well, about. No, when I read it the first time, I'm thinking like the sport, sport? Yeah, oh. the fencing <laughs> operation. Now, this is selling products. Right. On, okay. Buying and reselling Whatever. random items. On and it's that. funny. You came up with this story, and uh, but I had I had seen it online. Right. Of course, back when it... Because one thing, it's from Louisville. And, and it's interesting. And I think the reason it was a 3D Walkthrough was because it was being sold. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So so the house became intensely cluttered by all of these items. And when the owner had it listed on Redfin, who took the 3D photos, <laughs> uh, it wasn't long before the strange house made its way onto many forums and threads full of people baffled by its contents. 
leading to scavenger hunts where people would find an item of note and challenge others to take the 3D tour and try Isn't to find cool? it. That's kind of that's cool. <laughs> and yeah. like in this house or this building, it had a baptismal thing. It had yeah, I mean, we'll, yeah, we'll church, get to that. Right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so the most notorious oh, item was there you go. the bathtub. I remember when this circulated. I, I remember when it first came out, uh, and I thought to myself, you know, it, it's a bathtub. How hard can it be to find? Uh, and the challenge just reeked of clickbait. You know, it, it, yeah. it's just one of those yes. like, you know, can you find the bathtub? I don't know. It just it read weird. Uh, but I was lured in, and sure enough, the bathtub just doesn't make any sense. It's located up two flights of stairs that are on opposite ends of the house. You know, one flight goes up one story, and then the second flight goes up to the next story, but um, they're on opposite, opposite ends side. of the house. And we're not talking like, you know, regular bedrooms and stuff. I mean, these are alleys at this point of just warehouse items. Um, it's, you know, it's tucked behind these mounds of junk. Uh, and finally, I found found this bathtub, and it was its own room, entirely walled in with a staircase leading to nowhere on the opposite side. Oh, there you go. Right. Okay, I let the cat out of the bag then. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> well, growing up in the church, a, a church of Christ, coincidentally, I recognized it as a baptistry. And without the backstory, it made no sense whatsoever that a baptistry was just tucked away in the middle of the upper floor of this house. With soap bottles and disposable cups lining its sides. <laughs> I mean, blessings on blessings. You know, right. if you're bathing in a baptistry, head and shoulders, Irish spring bar, you know. Anyway, the oh, owner would later be so interviewed. So you're holy clean? Yeah, yeah, holy clean. The owner would later be interviewed where he explained that he had added quite a few walls to make the property into more of a house than a church. I, I assume this baptistry wasn't entirely walled in Probably when he not. first bought the house. But anyway. Yeah, I'm sure it was viewable from the outside yeah. somewhere, well, you and, know, like the, a sanctuary or and something. And where it is, it's kind of in the center. And it's not three stories because it, it's Kentucky, so it's very hilly. And I assume the bottom story is it's kind, kind of, of a like basement. a walkout basement. basement. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but this baptistry is kind of in the center of this top story. So really the Holy of Holies. Right. Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, right. I wasn't going to include this, but I mean, it's right past the aisle of soft corn or soft core pornography collection. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if I get it. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, anyway, God. So, and but that it went downhill quick. Yeah, but I assume, you know, this wall that was up wasn't there and it was visible. Yeah, to the, to the lower story of the house where you could view up, you know, anyway, somebody the, that, that's how right. I imagined it. Right. Um, hence the hence the stairwell to nowhere. Right, right. Yeah. And it it's so hard to visualize that even if, you know, you could see the 3D tour, which you can't now. I'll talk about that in a second. But it's so hard to visualize that because there's, I mean, the, the tour just seems like a labyrinth. It's crazy. Anyway, unfortunately, the listing has been taken down due to someone purchasing the home in March of this year. Congratulations to that lucky <laughs> fellow. Uh, so we were unable to find the 3D tour. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, however, many YouTube videos still exist of popular YouTubers taking the challenge. Uh, so you can go watch them and see the house through their eyes. Yeah, there's like pig trails through all of the Ugh. border it's stuff. It's, it's crazy. I mean, there, are, there are sections of it that are, you know, very well uh, maintained, organized right. and maintained. But, you know, in general, you know, it gets worse as you go further and further around. Well, uh, there's yeah. definitely parts of the house that were neglected that yeah. you just never saw. Anyway, my, I got my info from boingboing.net, <laughs> uh, the right place to get all of your information. Inputbag.com, avclub.com, and knowyourmeme.com. Wow, that was very rigorously researched. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time, boys and girls, for the trivia challenge. Yeah! 
All right, guys, you know the rules. Like and follow our Facebook page at Remnant Stew Podcast. Like and share this episode post and put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post. The first person to do all of that will be the winner and will be mentioned in an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew. Okay. This facility, located in an extremely remote area of the world, was created in order to preserve non-human life in the event of a cataclysmic event. It was it was created to preserve non-human life from extinction. Let me say that. In the okay. case of a cataclysmic event. What is the name of this place and where is it located? Wow. Hey, thanks for spending time with us. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Remnants 2 Podcast. You can also send us an email to say hi or suggest a topic for a future episode at staycurious.remnantstew.com. We would love to hear from you. Remnant Stew is now a part of Rook and Raven Ventures and is created by me, Leah Lamp. I want to say thanks to Sam for helping me research, write, and host today's episode. Yay! Our audio producer is Philip Sinkfeld. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. Special thanks goes out to Steve and Judy Maker and Harvin Gold. Before you go, please hit the follow button so you won't miss an episode. Head over to Apple Music and leave us a review. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, family, and that guy living in your crawl space. Mm. Until next time, remember to choose to be kind and always stay curious. curious.